Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Warzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. We explore the ideas, strategies, and approaches that brought them to where they are today. Hear the insights, behind-the-scenes secrets, and methods you can't find anywhere else. This podcast is for you if you are a seasoned investor, an upstart entrepreneur, or someone looking to break into the real estate and hospitality investing world. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at jwerzak on Twitter. And if you have enjoyed this show, I'd be incredibly grateful if you followed us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you listen to. We record on video, so you can always find all of our episodes on YouTube and be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. My conversation today is with Trevor Hightower, partner at McFarlane Capital Partners. This is a really different conversation from a lot of the ones we have here on the podcast because Trevor invests in farmland. Originally, McFarlane Capital Partners started out doing office and retail, and they've recently transitioned to be farmland investors. So we talk about everything from the impact of the military on Trevor's career, the importance of a company mission, finding great operators, the value of experience in real estate, creating generational wealth in farmland, and how they think about using leverage to do that. We also specifically go into how they structure deals on the farmland side, crop shares versus lease models, what surprised Trevor most about diligencing farmland, and what does value add look like in the asset class, and where they often see things going wrong in the acquisition process. Please enjoy my conversation today with Trevor. I thought a cool place to start would be to talk about how your military career has shaped your life and has impacted your business career. Because personally, uh, my coach that I use was in the military. And the way that he thinks about things is very different from, I think, a lot of my peers think about things that weren't in the military. And I place people in the military on kind of this high pedestal. And I think other business leaders and CEOs do that too. So I kind of want to understand it better from your perspective and how it's shaped your life and career. I'll start with a quick antidote. One of my mentors and one of my first bosses was a West Point grad who had extensive experience in combat zones and led people in combat. And I was in his office. We were going through an Argus model that he was correcting me on. And then someone, you know, really it came into his office. She was very frantic and said this was an emergency and listed off a number of reasons. It was a property management related issue and an office property. And he patiently listened, wrote down notes of, you know, he got all the facts and then she walked out. And then he calmly turned to me and said, that was not an emergency. And I think the um, context there is what I have always appreciated about men and women who serve is they have a, a good appreciation and a, and a good context for what is important, what is an emergency, how to deal with stressful situations. And so for me, I'm so grateful for 
my military experience. One, I, I grew up, I have an amazing mom. We're very close. For the big part of my childhood, it was, I, I lived in a single mother household. And she would be the first to say that I didn't have, let's call it a lot of structure. I, and, and I was also a pretty rebellious child and classic, you know, probably like many of your guests, ADD and was rebellious in, in many ways. And and by the way, I have a great relationship with my dad to this day, but a good portion of my life, it was my mom and my brother and I. And so I went to the Air Force Academy because thankfully for me, they let short but slow linebackers play at Air Force. Air Force, by the way, number 17th in the nation, very proud of my my team right now. But I got structure that I desperately needed when I went to the Air Force Academy. And I was driven by this motivation initially to play football. And then once I got there, after I went through basic training and went through the first year as a freshman, which is pretty difficult, you it's not your average college experience, so to say, and grew a love and appreciation for the service. But really what I realized is structure is so foundational and key for my happiness, for my my own personal flourishing. And I learned that in the military. I learned that, oh, I, I need structure. Structure is actually, you know, the it's the classic Jocko phrase, but discipline is freedom. I, re- I recognize that discipline in my life actually created a lot of what I wanted to, who I wanted to be and, and how I wanted to serve others. And so for that, I'll always be grateful for the military. And then the last thing I'll say, and this is great in, as a leader in, in team building, and you try to create this in companies that you either start or are part of, but having a shared mission, having a shared purpose, it is magic for culture. It's magic for building unity and towards an objective and a mission. And so what I loved about those that I worked with is we all had the same mission. We all had the same purpose and very diverse group that I served with in different capacities. But there was a level of trust and that really made my military experience. People always come up and say, thank you for your service. And I, I often want to try to explain, like, I love serving. It was an absolute gift. And I feel really blessed that I got that opportunity. And I know many friends and have a few friends who gave their lives. And that's who I want to point to when people say, thank you for your service, because there's a, a lot of folks who gave a lot more than I did. I felt like I was the recipient more than the giver. What were the biggest things you noticed transitioning from military life to business life? I'm passionate about this subject because servicemen and women have incredible experience sets. Oftentimes those, those experience sets don't translate into a resume that a business leader can look at and say, okay, I know exactly how this person fits in, which junior officers, a, a great transition for them is to go to business school and then, and then you know, go into a uh, workforce I would say, you know, for me, the biggest challenge initially was that same level of passion and uh, shared mission that 
you're looking for it coming out of the service and not necessarily experiencing that. And so that, that was a challenge. Now, overcoming that by, as you mentioned, there are a lot of folks, I was fortunate that saw my military experience as a benefit and from hiring around character and, uh, and then passion, I was fortunate to work under folks who really trained me up. And even though I was a few years behind in learning, you know, a lot of the X's and O's of real estate were able to train me, but believed in kind of the intrinsic values that I had coming from the military. How important is company mission? Because you talked about everyone's aligned around a common mission or goal in the military. But I know when I was starting my company, I didn't have a mission. I didn't have a vision. I was just like, uh, I'm going to go out and do hotels. And you're kind of figuring it out as you go along. But you've seen a bunch of different companies. You've worked at many different places. How does like mission work in the business world? And when is it correctly done? When is it not done? What have you seen? Well, I mean... It has to come from authentic place. It, it can't be made up. And I found that it, the mission doesn't also need to be grandiose. It, the, the mission can be, we're going to be the best hotel operator in the world, or we're going to be the best you know, GP sponsor for farmland. And it, that has to come from a real place. But when it does, then everyone can be aligned around that. And there's a common North Star of what everyone is after. So mission also is going to be there whether you create it or not or, or say it or not. It's just, it, is it a good mission or a bad mission? Every organization is going to be pointed in a direction. It's up to the leader to define this is who we are, this is who we're becoming. And it makes a huge difference. It makes a huge difference when that mission is inspiring and is clear and and so, and again, I, I think where companies can kind of lose their way is they actually try to adopt a mission that's not core to who they are and, and what they're trying to do. And I think so the more simple, the more on target that it is with the circle of competence that you have and what you're, you're focused on doing. And so again, one of the best missions could be that we're going to be the best hotel operator in the world. And that's a long-term mission and everyone can get aligned around that. Everyone understands, you know, that you're marching in that direction. I, I want to move to real estate and, and why real estate was something you wanted to spend your time doing. And then maybe you can kind of narrate your story in real estate and why you decided to land in each place that you landed. Yeah, thanks, Jake. The genesis for me, the Air Force was very kind to put me through grad school. I was in a, a grad school program while I was a second and first lieutenant at Los Angeles Air Force Base and went to school in the evening for an executive program. And it was a business school. I, I was on the business side of the Air Force working for was a contracting officer working alongside Lockheed Martin on the Atlas V launch vehicle. So I always say I got used to being the dumbest guy in the room because I literally worked with rocket scientists and I was not a rocket scientist. I was 
a business liaison for the Air Force, but they sent me to business school. And, you know, I loved business school. I loved classes on equities, loved classes on bonds, the language of business, learning, accounting, the the class that really stood out to me that I could understand more intuitively the first principles was a real estate finance class. And I could describe it like this. I mean, I could study and tell you all about different asset classes, but real estate, I just intuitively understood, okay, you can take a piece of land, you can take a property, you can increase value, you can increase rents. And all of it was more intuitive to me. And it was in that class that I realized, okay, like, this is it. Like, I, I want to get into real estate when I get out. And so when I got out of the Air Force, I went to work for a private REIT that was based out of Chicago, and they were doing big box industrial development in the Inland Empire, which, you know, Paris and Marino Valley, large million square foot distribution buildings. And this was 06, 07, and learning spending my you know 14 hours a day on Argus, but my the underwriting with cap rates going down into perpetuity and rents going up into perpetuity. And you know, that I was underwriting in a classic bubble. And so when the Great Recession hit, we had built a lot of building spec in Lynn Empire. And I had developed a mentorship relationship with the CEO and our shop in Los Angeles shrank from 50 people to three. And I begged and pleaded, said, I'll I'll sweep floors. I'll do really whatever it takes if you keep me on. And I think because I was cheap and he he probably felt sorry for me, he moved me to what he called an an asset manager role, but it's essentially a a leasing role to lease up these vacant assets in the Inland Empire with a nice way of saying, okay, Trevor will eventually die on the vine. And so by no skill, uh, I'd say a lot of hard work, but there's an expression that I love that luck is when preparedness meets opportunity. I was prepared to work hard. I learned a lot in that process. I learned that I love the transaction side of the business and love the deal making side of the business. I had spent a few years learning about real estate as an asset class and underwriting real estate. And that particular submarket, that particular asset class just turned around quicker than anyone thought. And we were able to stabilize those assets. I got credit for something I, I shouldn't have got credit for, but I learned a lot. And you know, going back to your question around transferring from the military, for me, that was a, a key moment because it accelerated my learning. And I was five years behind my, my peer set coming out of the, the military. And I was able to catch up pretty quickly because of what was a really stressful and a really hard time. And so out of that, I was recruited by a West Point guy to come join Parkway Properties, which is a publicly traded REIT, office REIT, at that time based out of Jackson, Mississippi. They're now based out of Orlando and had the opportunity to come join as a managing director of that re-learn office asset class. And really, we were trying to do two things, lease a 12-building suburban office portfolio, which I loved and came naturally to me, both leasing and the 
relationship and negotiation with brokers. And then we were growing a third-party management business. The company had always held on to third-party contracts after it had sold assets and had not intentionally grown that part of the business. So we grew that business and then was recruited by CBRE to come join as their managing director over office tenant rep group in, in Houston. So the genesis really came from the class in when I was still in the Air Force and then just had the opportunity to be part of different asset classes, different opportunities as they came up. Really have loved each asset class along the way and the nuances of each of them. Is there anything about a particular asset class that you saw that you were glad you weren't running the show or particularly heavily invested in that you're going to tend to shy away from? Or maybe it's a location or some sort of metric or attribute that you saw during the GFC that you're like, yeah, I'm going to stick away far away from that one forever. <laughs> no, I, you know, I, I didn't get a bad taste in my mouth or have any particular issue with uh, the asset class. I think each asset class, you, you can make the same mistakes. And, and I think in development, you can obviously be in the wrong part of the cycle. And, and I think you're, what, what I've always learned from that experience for me was a measure of conservatism in my underwriting that I have to this day. Always have that in my mind of a more aggressive underwriting in that era has put enough scars in for me that I, I'm uh, probably a, a little too conservative in my underwriting. And it's probably a, a, one of the reasons why I've ended up loving farmland so much, which we, we can get into. But no, I, I think, you know, didn't have a particular dis bad taste in my mouth from any asset class. I think that it was more just a measure of conservatism and underwriting and maybe more of a proclivity towards safer assets is what came out of that. What were the top three things you learned being a younger person, new in real estate during the GFC? Yeah, I mean, the, the top three, I mean, the, I'd say the, the first is be cognizant of cycles and, and which part of the cycle that you, you might be in. And I think that I was a younger person, so more you know, following orders and diligently underwriting what I was being told to underwrite. But I think what you know I've, I've learned since then is be really cognizant of the moment of cycle and it's impossible to know the exact but you can you can generally know which part of the cycle you're in and i think your underwriting should reflect that and that, so that would be the top i mean the classic one is not to be over levered and be very careful with leverage and again with our farmland assets we never have more than 50% leverage sometimes we have less and so i think holding assets for the for the longer term you want to be very cautious of being over levered and obviously that was the primary issue in the great recession i think that the third just being that like i mentioned before there's always opportunity in adversity and while that was a very traumatic event for many people it was also the start of a new cycle where folks who were prepared and firms that were prepared for backing up the truck and buying assets or 
and that did really well. So that there's a lot of opportunity coming out of adversity and being prepared for that to being prepared to take advantage of adversity when it comes. Did those three principles change at all? Or did you add a new one to the list having gone through COVID and now entering a interest rate rise cycle? They're, they're still true. And not being over levered is, I think, particularly true in a interest rate environment that I think is probably here to stay and, and is the new normal. And yeah, th- those principles, I think, only got more true coming out of the pandemic and then into this environment that we're in now with a new norm for interest rates. Do you think it's possible to create real generational wealth without significant amounts of leverage or let's just say leverage above 60%? Because leverage kills everyone. That's what it always is. It's leverage. So can you create this wealth without putting on a good amount of leverage? It all depends on time. And if you want generational wealth quicker, I think you're going to need to use leverage and you're going to need to be in the right part of the cycle when you're using that leverage. And many people have done that. Many people will continue to do that. I think for for me, I I think about generational wealth, truly generational, multi-decades, you know, 40, 50, 60 years. And if you can compound 11, 12% annually for 40, 50 years, long-term assets, then you can build generational wealth. You're you're not going to get rich quick. You're you're not going to see that next year, or you're not going to 10x your your wealth in a short period of time. But I think I've always been a fan of Warren Buffett and and Munger and and I subscribe to that philosophy of the compound interest equation. One of the the most important factors in an equation is time. So in today's environment where everyone is looking to get rich quick and everyone is trying to optimize whatever business they're in, but you mostly see it in real estate to maximize time. What have you learned being in the business now for 15 plus years? Well, I mean, it it leads to why we've gotten focused on the farmland strategy. But, you know, one of the principles that we've arrived at is we want to be in generational assets where risk is decreased, uh, volatility is decreased, and you can still realize good returns, get low double-digit returns over the long term and and do create wealth. It's just over a longer period of time. In an asset that has principles that, that you like from a macro perspective, and we can get into that, but I think where we've arrived is to play more of a long-term game to preserve and grow capital as opposed to try to double our money in a year or or even in in three or four years but do you know see a a 3x multiple over 10 years and that's why we're excited about farmland let's talk about it so a couple of years ago there was a lot of talk about all these mega mega wealthy people owning farmland owning ranch land and it reminds me of like maybe 18 months ago when you heard 
Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk saying they were selling stock. So it's almost like these people were getting into farmland. They were selling stock. Is this the new frontier? How did you end up investing in farmland, which I thought was mostly owned by big farming companies or farmers? How, how did that path happen? Yeah, I love that antidote or the analogy of the billionaires that have the future is here, just not evenly distributed. And I think it, it's good to see what billionaires are doing and and ask why, why, why they are. So yeah, how we got into farmland, you know, coming out of the pandemic, I'd say early April, May, our firm was concerned about inflation. And I think most, most people were concerned about inflation, saw the printing of money and vast increase in government spending and didn't take a rocket scientist to see that inflation was going to come down the pike. I think that the other thing that we were concerned with was where asset prices were in other asset classes that we traditionally had invested in office assets and retail and even the the public equity market. I mean, after things had rebounded quite significantly uh, in late 2020, prices were still really high in, in multiple asset classes. And we weren't being doomsday in what we thought was going to come, but we just thought a correction was going to come in, in many of these different assets that were overpriced. And so we were looking for a non-correlated asset that was an inflation hedge. And when you put those two together, it's not long before you find farmland. Uh, farmland has historically been an inflation hedge for pretty obvious reasons because of the product that it produces is directly tied to CPI, food, fuel, and fiber. And then in a very interesting way, in a way that we didn't fully know and understand, farmland had historically been negatively correlated to public equities and not correlated at all to other real estate asset classes. And we started to really ask why. And that was a multi-month, almost a year process to really try to get smart on the subject. And what I'd still say, we're not experts by any means or have learned everything we want to learn about the asset class. We still love to ask dumb questions from the smartest people in the space. But what we found out was a few things. One, farmland as an asset is in the United States is $3.4 trillion. So it, it's a every bit as big as the multifamily market or the office market. And yet it had really low representation of institutional capital. I mean, the private equity into the space was about $35 billion at the time, which was, yeah, so less than about 1% of the uh, entire asset class was private equity. We had seen the headlines that you reference of billionaires buying farmland. And that's another you know percentage of that ownership. But primarily, to your point, farmland's owned by generational uh, farmers. And uh, without a lot of private equity or institutional capital in the space. So that was interesting to us. We, we liked that probably we're early into uh, an asset class that was going to see more institutional capital. The other thing that we liked and the primary reason why 
farmland doesn't correlate with other asset classes, where just the macro supply and demand fundamentals, you have a growing population, global population, and a growing global middle class. And so the demand for food, fuel, and fiber is only going to increase. And I think that's pretty clear and obvious to anyone who sees those global trends. The other interesting part of the asset class, unique to other real estate asset classes, is the supply of farmlands actually decreasing at a pretty significant clip. So farmland the size of the state of Wisconsin has been taken off of the market because of new development primarily and water issues in in some states. So you have a supply of farmland that's actually decreasing while the demand is, is growing. And so we felt pretty good about the macro factors and then the lack of institutional competition in the space to be early. And so we got, we got really interested when you combine that with the asset itself being an inflation hedge and with some, with some good return, historical return numbers, low single, single digit, sorry, low double digit returns and decided that this was an asset class we really wanted to focus on. So how do you go about transitioning from an office and retail shop, private equity business, to a farmland investing business? Well, and I, I should back up and say that McFarland Capital Partners is a 40-year history of being a GP sponsor and historically doing individually capitalized deals great track record of success. We're based in Dallas and have a group of investors who are family offices and high net worth individuals. And the firm has done a great job of creating great performance in each of these investments uh, over time and built up a lot of trust and a, a great brand. And part of the principle or theme of the firm has always been thematic investment. So I think our mutual friend, Chris, can easily tell me all the reasons why being a thematic investor has some disadvantages, and it does, no, no question about it. Harder to scale, uh, you can't be focused you, to, the, to the mission comment, you can't be necessarily the best in the world, but there's some advantages to being a thematic in, investor. And primarily, you know, it's around finding the right opportunities in the right cycle for the asset that you want to invest in. And so the firm has had a track record of success of pivoting to asset classes that were right for the season, right for the moment, and and really focusing on those assets in that given time. So that concept wasn't necessarily new in late 2020 when we pivoted to farmland. But farmland is elite from you know what you call traditional commercial real estate while having a lot of characteristics that are similar. So the process for us was one, getting convicted ourselves that this was the right time to put a significant amount of our focus into the asset class to understand the asset class generally and to understand how we would enter it specifically. Once we got convicted around that, then it was a matter of uh, communicating to our investors why you know, in late 2020, we had lost conviction in investing in 
suburban value add office and why we had gained conviction of investing in farmland. And so to the credit of our founder, Dean McFarland, my partner, Mac McFarland, and our team, we were able to communicate this to our investors. And, and a good percentage of investors who had never invested in farmland before all of a sudden got really interested in the asset class for the same reasons that that we did and came along with us into uh, investing in farmland. And our first investment was in 2021. I'd love for you to talk about the advantage that a 40-year real estate GP has when they're going to start another real estate vertical. I think there's a ton of value in specialization, but real estate people probably like to overcomplicate what real estate is. And a lot of real estate is very much the same, whether it's multifamily, office, retail, it's the same core principles. But how easy was it for you to like spool up a new asset class because you had this 40-year infrastructure already in place? Or how difficult was it? I mean, maybe it was hard. The the 40-year history was immensely helpful because of a track record of of trust and performance. And, you know, I think I've heard you say this before on your podcast and anyone who's in the real estate industry and and, in our position as GPs know this to be a fact that our, at the end of the day, our, our greatest asset, really our primary asset is our reputation. And so we we have to be above reproach and deliver for uh, LPs and deliver for all of our stakeholders because that's, at the end of the day, all we have. And so the benefit we had was a great track record and trust with a group of LPs who we'd been with for multi-decades and and not every investment that they've invested with was a complete grand slam. But the way that the firm handled the investments that were challenging and then the investments that were a success, it, it was it helped us in so many ways to be able to make the pivot. Really, so the, the only equity that we had to make the pivot was that trust. Uh, so it was extremely helpful. And I think that going back to the history being one of thematic investment, it wasn't a complete surprise for the investor base to you know see that there was a pivot into a new asset class because that's has had been the history to find the opportunistic times to invest into a new real estate class when we had lost conviction about a, a strategy that we had before yeah what made it a challenge and why we it took us 18 months until we did our first farmland deals we had to find how we were going to enter the market in a way that we had conviction uh, that we've created some advantage for our investors and and that it was a, a deal structure that we felt really confident about and so we didn't rush into that we it, it took a long period of diligence for us and discovering what was the right way to enter the space. But once we had determined that, then our investors were at that point excited about entering the asset class with us. I want to go with that a little bit because 
when you're new and you're starting your new real estate company, you have the benefit of not knowing what you don't know. But when you are experienced and you have a 40-year reputation, you know what you don't know. So how did you overcome the objections internally with yourself to go out and avoid thinking at every turn you were the dumb money coming in? Like if we're getting this deal, if we have the opportunity to buy this piece of farmland, what other smart people passed on this one? How did you overcome those objections like internally and from your investors who might also be concerned about the same thing? I love this question, Jake. And it goes back to, in addition to companies having having a mission being extremely important, companies having principles by which they make decisions is also incredibly important. So I mentioned a principle of thematic investment that that principle is rooted in, we're going to find the right opportunities and not be stuck in a mindset that doesn't create the best opportunities for our investors. A, a second principle for for us that is extremely important is we have never been fully integrated in any of the investments that we've uh, invested in in any asset classes. So, and you know this better than anyone, of finding the the best-in-class operator and how important that is, how important that is to to your business. It's particularly important in farmland. And so the principle that guided us to find the the right investment was starting first with the operator. And so in farmland, that's finding best-in-class farmers. So we really dug into the landscape. And so going back to farmland being $3.4 trillion asset class, very little institutional capital in the space. The other dynamic that's happening that we discovered was happening in farmland is similar to the small to medium-sized business environment, the, the silver tsunami. And there's a silver tsunami in farmland. It's just that the average age of farmers are 60 to 65. In that 98% owned by generational farmers, there's a huge percentage of that farmland where the next generation either doesn't have the skill or the will to farm. And so a majority of transactions are occurring because of that dynamic. And a lot of times it was more you know, farmers who are successful who are buying those parts, those land from the farmers who didn't have the next gen to, to farm. So we were looking for already successful farmers who had built up scale because of that dynamic. And so some of the things that we were looking for was farmers who were farming at scale, who had already started to aggregate a larger portfolio of farmland assets that, which you can check this, that was, that had been historically outperforming the county averages and yields in the, the crops that they'd been farming using technology and systems and team structure that really created better yields in farmland. And then, you know, frankly, that were entrepreneurial and wanted to grow and wanting to go to that type of operator with more of a private equity growth strategy that we could we could help fuel their growth if they would in turn help us source, identify deals that they felt were rightly priced, that they really wanted to own longer term, and that we could create a unique deal structure that was mutually beneficial for the farmer and for our investors. And I can get more into that, but the simple principle is we would not enter the space unless we could identify 
who those best in class operators were and really create a mutually beneficial partnership with them. So is what you're finding in investing in farmland, is it more important to find the good operator who maybe can identify the land and farm the land versus finding a good piece of farmland that's really nutrient dense and well located and then finding the operator after? Which one is it? Well, we, we think both, and we think the, w- the way to get to both is start with the operator. Because the operator in a particular region, if they're best, truly best in class, and we, you can create a mutually beneficial deal structure with them and help them help fuel their growth, they're, they're going to help identify the best price. And, and then along with that, the right farms to buy, whether that is things that have been overlooked, the, the soil quality itself, the, the things that they know that only they can know. So you can see just how important the, the operator relationship is to us and our strategy. And in order to meet operators, you have to look at farms. And we, we in that period, the 18-month period, underwrote more than a dozen farms. But what we were doing was underwriting farming operators. And we were looking for that initial partnership that we could we could start with and we found that in an, an operator in northeast montana a young man who has a young family started with 600 acres at a least and when we first met him he was up to about 50,000 acres of farmland that he either owned or leased he was outperforming county averages and what he wanted was capital to grow. He had farms that he wanted to purchase or, or purchase or and and or farms that he really wanted to operate. And he was looking in Montana, South Dakota. And we were able to, one, develop trust with him over a period of time and help solve the need for him that we could provide capital to help him expand his operation. And in turn, he could be an excellent operator for us and we could create deal structures that were beneficial to him and to our our investors. So how are you structuring these deals? Is the farmer or the operator leasing the land from you and he's basically at risk for whatever happens, if he has a great year, if he has a bad year? Or are you, in a sense, partnering with him in the business and kind of maybe paying him a fee, but then sharing in the upside of the fruits of your bounty. Yeah. Well, let, let me take a step back and just, I, I think our audience, your audience is primarily real estate investors, real estate operators, owners. So it's very similar to other real estate asset classes in that the, the two ways that a farmland asset is going to make money is through whatever annual yield or, or income the asset can create. And then the appreciation of the the underlying asset, and those are your two ways that the the investment makes money. Farmland has traditionally much lower cap rates than most real estate asset classes, and it varies just like other real estate asset classes by region. And there's a like class A, and it's not called class A, class B, class C, but uh, farmland has its own range of cap rates that you can buy into, and then. The traditional farmland structure is either a lease that it's interesting in farmland, the lease gets paid 
upfront in March. It's a one-time payment or farmland has crop share where essentially you are participating in a percentage of the revenue and you're participating in essentially the, the upside or the downside. I'll give you a, a antidote or a case study of kind of, I keep on saying mutually beneficial agreement and may provide an example to provide more context or color around what exactly we do. Our farming partner, for instance, a, a deal that we're taking to market here soon, he identified a farm that he thinks is a, he, he calls it a steal. We, we don't use that terminology. We, we think it's well-priced based on the surrounding comps in the area. The per acre price is below the comp. The, our farmer thinks it's, it's a steal because he sees that the current, that current farm has only been farmed on an annual lease and hasn't been farmed for the long term with the right crop rotation to really create the yield that he thinks that farm can generate. So he thinks it's well-priced. He also wants to own his farmland generationally for his family. He wants to grow his operation, but then he has young kids. Ideally, in a perfect world, he'd love to own a majority of the farms he's, he's currently leasing. So knowing what's important to him. And then we went out to the farm where he was in South Dakota. And I spent the first day with him on the tractor and just talking about his operation. And you can see really quickly why he has been excellent because we're talking, he's telling me all about his you know, story and how he and his wife got married. And then he stops me and on his John Deere tractor, there's a little, it looks like a F-15 cockpit. He He sees one of his operators, one of his team on a different farm, miss a spot that's like 10 feet wide. He, he calls him up, says, hey, you miss a spot. You need to go pick that up. I had already known this about our operating partner, but he's, he's OCD. And I'm like, oh, I, I get why you've been you know so successful. You, you deeply care that every little thing is done with excellence. So we spend the first day with him on the farm. That was great. The second day on the farm, we go out and we're literally sitting on his tractor and I pull out my laptop and I, and I pull up our financial model and I say, Hey, in order to buy this farm, you know, we're in a completely different interest rate environment. The risk-free rate is, I, I think I showed him the one-year treasury bill and it was like 5.3%. It's like, this is what our investors can make without lifting a finger. And they, they do not need to invest in farmland unless they have a compelling reason why they are going to get a better investment than what this is. And he's super smart, got it right away. And in our model, we said, okay, if we, if we're have, we buy this farm and we have this amount of debt, we need to back into a cash yield that has a premium to this risk-free rate. And then the appreciation of land is all upside to our investors. And now we have a compelling investment for our investors that we have a premium to what the risk-free rate is. And then we have appreciation of the asset. And, you know, we're just describing to him, like our investors, they don't need this huge IRR, but they need an IRR that, that is safe, that they can feel really good about. And they're going to, you know, put a portion of their allocation, in the farmland, they feel good about this allocation. And we know that you want to buy this farm eventually and that you see a lot of value in the farm. So we can give you a purchase option in year five and then in year 10 
that can back into our RRR with the appreciation, you feel good about it because of the value. And then you're able to pay this above market lease rate that gets us to the 8% average cash yield over the lifetime of the, the lease, which in farmland to get that type of yield is rare. Farmland, again, traditionally has much lower cap rates. But he was able to do that because we were able to solve his his need of providing capital. He can now farm this for the long term. He has this purchase option. Our investors you know, feel great about it because it's a unique yield in a safe asset like farmland that then has upside appreciation. And it's truly a win-win. And that's the type of structure we want to repeat. And our objective is that as many options that our operators execute, that's the, the better. We, that's our flywheel. We're solving a huge need for them. Our investors are happy. The options that don't get executed, then we want to build a portfolio of farmland and have a larger portfolio that an institutional investor would eventually be interested in purchasing. Because the issue with farmland is that there aren't a lot of large farms to invest in, and there's not a lot of aggregated portfolios for institutional capital to buy. Institutional capital wants to enter the space. They like the non-correlated asset. They like its low volatility. They like you know the the return profile. It's just been a difficult asset to enter into. So we want to aggregate a larger portfolio that eventually we could provide as an investment to institutional investors. In a specific deal, what would need to happen for you to want to enter into a crop share model as opposed to a lease model? It's a great question. What you're essentially doing there is it's a risk return profile and it would have to, we'd have to feel really good about underwriting the downside scenario of both commodity price risk and, and then historical yields. And there is an interesting element to farmland investment that's worth noting, which is federal crop insurance, which will subsidize, it's, it's subsidized insurance that covers a loss in a down year for a harvest. And that's unique. And that's, that's, in, that's in farmland. And the purpose of that legislation is to ensure that our U.S. food supply continues to be robust and that farmers are incentivized to farm no matter what. And so it, it's, but it's great from an investment standpoint because it does mitigate, protect your downside. But we'd have to really understand what the insurance rate is, what the insurance payout is in a down year and understand really deeply what the, the risk is on the, on the downside and then get really comfortable on what the upside could be so that our very conservative underwriting of a more of a volatile yield, not a, not a straight lease yield we feel really confident about. And in a crop share agreement, your yields are going to be higher if you're making the investment. You're believing that yields are going to be higher over the average of the 10-year versus the lease. You're just accepting more risk of the volatility of the annual cash flows. What surprised you most about underwriting your first couple of farmland deals and diligencing them? Yeah, I mean, it's, this wasn't a surprise, but there's not as much information in farmland as other asset classes. So you, you really have to go and get 
low that that again for us that's why our operating partner and alignment with the operating partner is so key is that we never wanted to be solely beholden to our operating partner for all of our underwriting we we do all of our underwriting in addition to what our operator is telling us but for the operator to validate our assumptions around soil crop quality around uh, projections of yield around the value of the land there are very few comps on the market and you can get them and you know finding great intermediaries who are the power law brokers in any given region yes we we have relationships with them and we're getting information from them but then there's a lot of off market information comp data that our operator can help us get and other you know, relationships and so it's important when you're at our scale which is we're we're small to focus on a region and really dive into relationships in that region none of that was a surprise and i think we're big fans of there's a vc backed group called acre trader and they've started what essentially is the co-star of farmland called acres.co i think it's acres.com now and they're doing a great job of starting to aggregate data and and make it more streamlined it's still a long ways away and they'll always still be the co-star quality to to something like acres.com but there's more information coming in this space as as it becomes as more institutional investment enters it but you really need to have boots on the ground and you really need to dive in and validate each of the data sets that you're getting from that boots on the ground what does value add look like in farmland in traditional real estate you know multifamily it's easy redo the kitchens and bathrooms and boom you've created value and appreciation what does that look like on the farming side of the world? Yeah. I mean, I love the question. So we're we're in row crops, dry land row crops in Montana and South Dakota. There's a category of farmland investment that's permit crops, where it's essentially any of the produce that you grow on trees, almonds, you know, pistachios, fruit. And so by nature, if you're doing a permanent crop farmland and you are growing these trees, which are depreciating assets, then you're creating value. And so if you're if you're creating a permanent crop farm, that in, in its essence is value creating. And we have invested in in vineyards and and so that's an obvious way to create value. I would say what we're doing in Montana, South Dakota is more around being very proactive about finding additional income sources, whether that be hospitality or hunting, which is really big in that region. And we, we love leaning in, facilitating those. There's a lot of government money that's geared towards solar and wind. And those are uh, our opportunities that can generate uh, income and and if you do that in the right way, those there's some opportunity there. Cattle is another opportunity. There, there's when you're buying for us, we're buying thousands of acres at a time. There's some really exciting opportunities to create income on the asset in a way that uh, doesn't diminish the the core income producing crops that you're you're looking to harvest. 
And so that's how we try to in- intentionally create value. It's never part of our underwriting. We always look at any of that additional income as as upside for our investors, but we are very proactive in looking for those opportunities. What about like tractors and the equipment? Is that owned by you as the farmland owner or does that fall under the operator's P&L and he brings all the equipment and there's not a lot that you have to worry about there? It's the latter. It, it falls under the opco, which is the farmer. And the farmer, again, what you're looking for, what we've been looking for in our farming partner with these farmers who are operating at scale is uh, they have either owned or leased equipment that's best in class, and they have a, a team in place who's operating this equipment. And so that is part of the the farmer's PL. And really what we look for is a farmer who has a, a great fleet and has is past that stage of startup where they they have the equipment in place and the team in place to uh, to grow and so and that's not easy for farmers to get to there are a number of them who've hit that point and threshold and now they're looking to expand and grow the amount of acres that they're farming so i know this is a new venture 2021 but i'm sure you've had a deal go wrong that you either closed on or you didn't close on, where have you seen things go wrong in your acquisition process? Yeah, I think where it it really boils down to is in due diligence. And we've really migrated, especially in this interest rate environment that we're in towards the lease structure that really takes this kind of commodity price and, and yield price risk out of the deal. And the only way you can create yield that I think is attractive to investors in the lease model is to create some kind of unique structure like we have, like I mentioned, where you're able to create a purchase option for the farmer who who wants to grow and wants to own it. Where, we, where we've seen deals fall out is frankly, when we have more of the crop share arrangement or an operating agreement model where we're participating in commodity price risk and yield risk. And we're, we don't, we didn't get comfortable with the underwriting of what those yields would be. And we've entered kind of a, a double whammy of high interest rates and commodity prices have gone way down. Every commodity is different, but it, there's been a huge drop in prices for the crops that are primarily farmed in uh, Montana and South Dakota, wheat and wheat primarily, soy. And so when commodity price, it's hard for us to see where commodity price is going if we don't see kind of light at the end of the tunnel. And then, you know, we don't get comfortable with where historic yields have been once we kind of get into a deal. Then that's where we've seen deals fall out or we just weren't able to get comfortable with moving forward. Are you capitalizing these investments deal by deal or as a fund with multiple farms in one investment vehicle? We're doing it deal by deal. And I think we've always entertained the uh, fund structure, but what we like about deal by deal, especially as we are in the early stages of this investment for us is we will only invest in a farmland deal that we feel really convicted about. We're not... um, have any undue pressure to get capital out. And it goes again with kind of the, our thematic investment principle. 
there'd be a lot of advantages to having a captured capital and we haven't completely ruled it out. I think especially as we start to get more of the flywheel spinning and and we're we have a lot more deals under our belt. But for now, each of the farmlands are individually capitalized. A lot of the, the same LPs are in each deal, but they're they are deal by deal. I want to transition and talk a little bit about the company McFarland. You mentioned father and son. This has been going on for 40 years with a great track record. I've seen father-son businesses that either go really well or they go poorly and maybe they lack kind of a succession plan or future beyond the founder. What's your experience been like in your company? So funny story about this, Jake, is my wife and I, right when we were thinking about joining McFarlane, we started watching the show Secession, the HBO show. And what was funny is we were just starting to talk uh, about actually joining as a partner with Dean and Mac. And I turned to my wife and said, the reason why this show is so good is that this family is an absolute train wreck. And that's what makes it so entertaining. And my observation of the McFarlands is that they're the exact opposite. And not that they there's not conflict that they just handle it with a lot of health and they have an expression calling clear the air where they address any issue that is underneath the surface. They just, they have this wonderful habit of saying, Hey, we need to clear the air on this. That like, we're, we're not, I, I don't like how this is going. And that, the reason why I had context to know this even before I joined is Dean McFarland had been a mentor of mine for 10 years in Dallas real estate. He's, very well known. And he was gracious to be a mentor for for 10 years. I had started a company that he was the the lead investor in. And not only was he a lead investor, he was the 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 investor that, you know, would call every now and then just to check in. We had monthly meetings that I'd meet to present how things were going in the company. But after every business case study update of where we were, he'd always ask how I was doing as a leader, how I was doing as a husband, how I was doing as a father. I had, in the same time frame, struck up a friendship with Mac McFarlane and just saw that the apple had not fallen far from the tree, just character and confidence. And and so when they had asked, and this was coming out of what was really a healthy transition where Dean had stepped into a senior advisor role Mac had stepped into the senior manager role. They were looking for a partner to come in with with Mac. And when they had reached out to see if I was interested, I did not have to underwrite character. I mean, I, I knew I had seen it so many times in spades. So I feel really grateful for that. I've asked Mac and Dean what has made their transition so successful. And I think what they would go back to and I've heard them both say this, is they never lost sight of the most important thing, which was their love for each other. And that allowed them, they are very open that it's not like they did not have conflict or didn't have to work out disagreements and how that transition would, would come about. But there was a mutual honoring and, and love for each other that led to what I, as far as I can see in my relationships with, and I've had a few different friends who haven't had such a great experience with this, 
it led to one of the better transitions that, that I've seen. Do you think that's because they both were in alignment on the end state, like where they wanted to end up? They just maybe didn't know exactly how it was going to get there, but they were agreeing how it was all going to end? They were agreed on, on how they wanted it to... Uh, they, they agree that they both wanted what was best for the other. They also agreed that they they didn't know how to get there. They, they were clear at the beginning that it you know that there might be a disagreement of how they get there, but they were okay with that because they both wanted what was best for each other, and they did want the ultimate end goal. So I think they were clear on both, both the end goal and that they may not be a completely aligned on how to get there, but they would work towards that in order to get there. Which I, you know, I, I love thinking about that. If you or I are in that blessed position to have a son who would want to continue on the business, it's a great lesson of just, you know, wanting what's best for our children also being clear that we may not have the same agreement about how to get there and that's okay. Like it's okay to, but we want to know where we're going. We agree on that. And then we're going to work together on really what's best. Cause I think that's how you get to the best answers to begin with. And, you know, in, in that scenario, probably both of them weren't right at the beginning about what the path should be. And they, they, they ended up finding the best solution as they worked together to find what the right path was. What have you learned about reputation from Dean McFarlane in the community as a person, as a business leader that you want to take with you in your career? You know, I just recently started to become more engaged on social media and I still endeavor to do more so. But one of the best responses, and I'd love to include it in the show notes or just send it along is Dean gave his top 10 life lessons to really kind of a small group of people. And with his permission, I, I shared it on X and it got a great response. And it's really the embodiment of who he is. And I'm, I have it up on my wall now, but like the number one on the list is it's not about me. And for a guy who is as successful and has done really so much in the, the Texas real estate community, what he is just true down to his core is that he exists to serve others. And that's not BS. I mean, he, he exists to serve others and that comes out in so many ways. And so what I would want to be known for, and you have to earn this over time, it's definitely compound interest and long obedience in the same direction. And you know, it could be taken away like like that if you don't have the right character in different moments. But that to have a reputation that you exist to serve others and that be validated by 40 years, I think that's the gold standard. Talk to me a little bit about I don't know if it's like an abundance mindset or or being open, but we actually just negotiated a deal with someone from Dallas and he called me last night and was like, you know, I, I had this idea of you, but when I was actually negotiating the deal with you, it was the reality of what I perceived. And that was that 
you're going to get to a rational decision pretty quickly. And we're not really going to go back and forth. I'm going to kind of tell you what I need. You're going to tell me what your needs are. And we kind of got there. And that was what he articulated in a way better way than, than I just did. But I've encountered a lot of people that the negotiation is exhausting and is a lot bigger than it needs to be. And I don't know if it's like Texas people or what, but I found Texas people are just like good to deal with and they're not worried about like killing someone else to make themselves grow taller. I mean, I guess maybe in the oil days, like some of that happened, but maybe not. But like, I'm curious to get your take on that as someone in that environment. And it may be a fantasy I have like these old Texas real estate guys wearing cowboy hats, but that's my view. Oh man. Well, one, as a Texan, I'm I'm glowing right now. I'd love that you'd associate that with Texas. And I, I hope it's true. Obviously, it's a principle that applies no matter where you live. And I would just say a few things. I have a mentor who is a Texan. His name is Terry Looper. He built a multi-billion dollar oil business in, in Houston. And but he's one of the best listeners in the world. And I asked him about this and he, he gave me an insight to this is that, you know, the key to any great relationship and the key to great marriage, great mentorship relationship, and really to create a great deal is truly listening to the other person. And he, he calls it listening out. And if you have a zero sum mindset and it's, you know, I'm going to get mine. You're going to get yours. You're, you're not really listening to what the other person really wants. And having that abundance mentality, one, I just, you know, you got to inherently believe that's true. But once you get there, then what you're really listening for in listening out to someone is how you can give them what they want. And by giving them what they want, you're able to create a win-win. And I would say, yeah, I agree with you. And I bet this is what this gentleman was saying about you is that I only want to do deals with those who know that you can you can truly create win-win situations. You can really create what the other person wants and what and what you want if you do a good job of listening out. If you're not able to create that, maybe it's not worth doing the deal. And so that's what's great about, in my opinion, capitalism. That's what's great about free market system is you can create situations that actually create more abundance with the right partnership and and really searching to find how you can create the win-win. I think over time, those are the kind of the, use the Naval Ravikant quote, those are the kind of the long-term people that you do long-term games with. I think that anyone can be sharp elbowed and and really be zero sum and, and maybe do a good deal or two, but they won't be around, you know, in the decades to come. And so I, I'm, I'm glad that you see it as a Texas quality. I, I hope that continues to be the case with uh, so many people moving to Texas, but it, it's obviously a, a general principle that applies to really, I'd say any long-term person you want to do a long-term game with. I think where a lot of people make a mistake, there's, there's this great negotiating book called Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. And I actually didn't fully appreciate, I think, until 
now what it means. But when you talk about a win-win, that means you're getting something great, I'm getting something great. Oftentimes, I think if you're not listening in a negotiation, you're only focusing on one win for one person. And then maybe how do you split that in half? As opposed to what you're articulating now is give them 100% of that win, but figure out what a win would look like for you and then try and get 100% of whatever that is for you, which is not splitting up what theirs might have been. A lot of times we don't listen well enough to actually realize that what they want is different than what you may have thought. I mean, to, to really listen out and understand what what someone really wants, I think that's a lost art or very few people do that. But using the example of our of our farmer, we spent months listening out from him. Hey, you you want to own this generationally? Tell me more about that. Oh yeah, like my I'd love it'd be a dream if my son, you know, is farming this one day. But what what I want more than anything is just this land for my family, for my grandkids. Okay. Well, if, if you didn't hear that, then that's a problem. You need to really listen, understand like this is really important to him. You know, the other thing important to him, he wants to grow his operation. Okay. He wants to grow his operation. Okay. And then in turn, by respecting that, we're able to share with him like, okay, here's what's important to us. Investors in this environment, they need a yield that's greater than the risk-free rate. And they don't need, you know, an IRR that's 30%, but they need it mid-team, you know? And then what was great is we literally created a win-win by giving him what he wanted and what we wanted. And it was a true win-win. And so those exist all over the place, but you have to have relationship, trust, and you have to listen out in order to create them. I want to kind of end on mentors because as the conversation has gone on, it seems like mentors have been very impactful to your life. And we've also talked about being intentioned in what you do. So how do you interact with your mentor where it's a true mentor-mentee relationship as opposed to a mentor that you're the only one that thinks he's the mentor, but the actual mentor doesn't really think he's mentoring you, which happens to a lot of people. So how do you interact? Like, I'm curious to know with your mentors in a purposeful way. Yeah. Well, I love this question. And the most valuable commodity that any of us have is time. And so starting from that reality and that principle, to honor any relationship, you need to honor time. And so with mentors, and I always maybe intuitively do, have done this, but now I share with any younger person coming out of college seeking a mentorship relationship. You you need to, one, honor the time. So how do you honor someone's time? Before any meeting with a mentor that you truly want to learn from, be prepared. Know exactly what you want to ask. Have defined questions. Questions unlock so much. If you can ask the right questions, you can get the right answers. And so spending time to think about, okay, what, what is it that I'm struggling with? What do I, what do I need to learn from this person? This person has unique experience here. What question do I want to ask? So intentionality on the front end with questions. And then what is often lacked too is in the follow-up, because if you want to honor a mentor's time, then you follow up and say, here is what we talked about. 
And then here is what I'm doing in my life because of what you told me. And I'm amazed at how rare that is and how the most important people in my life who have the least amount of bandwidth find that to be so rare that people do that to follow up and say, Hey, we talked about this, this, and this because of this, I'm now doing this with my wife. I, I, my, my wife and I are having a, a weekly meeting, a weekly touch in point. I'm now doing this with my son. I made this change in my business and you show the mentor exactly the action you took because of the wisdom that they gave you. I tell, you know, folks that uh, younger folks that I talk to, if you do that, you now have that mentor, I bet is going to want to continue to help you because you've, you've honored their time and you've honored their, their knowledge. And so I have, I'm fortunate to have four key mentors in my life that I do this with. And, and I, you know, I'm 41. I still prep hours for that meeting. And then I will follow up and say, I did this because you told me to do this. Terry's one of them. He's, he's in his late seventies. And I, I think that mentorship is one of the most important things to receive. And then also, you know, to give, and I think my guidance, knowing the audience that you have and the type of leaders who are listening to this is to find a mentor and to find someone that you can mentor and, you know, emphasize the, the value of time in both of those relationships. I love it. I ask all the guests on the podcast the same closing question, and that is, what's your favorite hotel? <laughs> okay. So I have an epic love story with my wife, Tyler. The, the long story short is when I was at the Air Force Academy, she was at CU Boulder. I snuck into a fraternity party she was in. I had the high and tight haircut in Boulder. I mean, I, I mean, looked like I didn't belong, to say the least. And I just got out of basic training. So I was like a caged animal. And I see this amazing, beautiful blonde across the hall. And I like gave her the most cheesy line ever. Like, you're the most beautiful girl I've ever seen. Will you dance with me? And we dated all through college. And then I was a total knucklehead when I got stationed in LA and we broke up. That's the short story. There's a lot more of that. But we broke up and we do not see each other for four years. I go back for a Air Force football game and I ask her to coffee. My whole goal was just to say, I, to apologize for what a knucklehead I was. And I don't have a very vivid memory, but I remember every detail about this when I'm sitting in the coffee shop. I'm a little nervous. I got my whole speech you know, prepared that I'm going to tell her. And I like, I remember like, there was a glass in front of me that ice, I could hear the ice. I could, I can see the setting now. She walked by and then she walked, you know, into this coffee shop. And there was a certain song playing that re remember that there's a certain song playing. And I start into like my, my spiel, you know, my apology. And again, we have a 30 minute hard stop. I'm not expecting her to really, you know, receive it that well. Well, like by complete grace, this 30 minute conversation turns into five hours. And it was one of the most beautiful conversations we've ever had and found out just a lot of things that had changed in my life and that changed in her life. So a few months later, I'm going to propose to her. Okay. So she, she says, okay, like I, I'm going to, I'm going to give this knucklehead another chance. 
And so I call the montage in uh, Laguna Beach. Okay. And I say, hey, I'm going to propose to my wife. And there was this, a certain song that I, I'd love for your piano player to play because it was going on in the background. I had to explain it all. And it was this, you know, on is a country music song, not something that is normally played in the, you know, hotel lobby of the, the montage in, in Laguna Beach. But I've heard you talk about this, and this is what makes hospitality and hotels so amazing. The entire staff was excited about it, in on it, just like it, it felt like a little stage was happening and play because like we had organized it where everyone was everyone knew what was going on. And so we're we're in the hotel lobby and the piano player starts to play. And it's this very again Texas country music song that's playing. And I start singing that song and I propose to Tyler and the, you know, the entire staff comes out and celebrates. So this is the power of moments and the power of hospitality and the power of brand. I don't care what the price is. Like on t- on Tyler and I's anniversary, we're going to the montage. Like we're we're in. Like we are all in on that brand on that hotel because they went out of their way to create that moment for us. And so, yes, my favorite hotel, the Montage in Laguna Beach. That's an amazing story. I got to get this to Alan Firstman, who's the CEO or chairman of Montage. Oh, please that do. That is amazing. Trevor, it was awesome to have you on the podcast. Appreciate you. It's a great combo. Thanks, Jake. Appreciate it. Hey, everyone. It's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Jay Warzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Warzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice.